Hello, and welcome to Uplift, a podcast about the transformative power of design from architecture and design firm MBBJ. I'm your host, Daphne Corona. Each episode, we chat with people from all over the healthcare continuum who have been deeply affected by the built environment. On today's episode, the COVID-19 pandemic was the most significant global health event to take place in our lifetime, impacting every person in every country around the world. Hospitals and healthcare organizations are still contending with its fallout, facing financial pressures, staffing shortages, and stress and burnout for healthcare workers. But there is also a hopeful path forward. Lessons learned from COVID-19 inform how hospitals plan and design for the future, with an increased focus on improved infection control strategies, flexibility and adaptability, and resources to protect caregivers' mental health. To discuss, I'm joined today by Dr. Adrian Cotton, Chief of Medical Operations at Loma Linda University Medical Center, Dr. Michael Phillips, Chief Hospital Epidemiologist at NYU Langone, as well as my MBBJ colleague, Brian Langlands. We'll talk about their experiences, both personal and professional, during the pandemic, lessons learned, and how they're planning for the future. Let's dive in. Thank you all so much for being here today. Dr. Cotton, I'll start with you. Tell us what you do in your role at Loma Linda and how that shifted or changed during the COVID-19 pandemic. So I'm an internal medicine specialist and a hospitalist, and I help coordinate the interactions between the physicians, the nurses, getting patients' beds in the hospital, both from the emergency room, from outpatient surgeries, the direct admissions, and then a lot of the transfers that come into Loma Linda from outside hospitals. Being the teaching hospital in our local area, we get a lot of requests for higher level of care and we review all those cases before those patients come over to our hospital, making sure they're appropriate to come and that we also have a place to put them. When COVID-19 hit, we kind of had heard some news about it coming. And so we had a small group of people that got together and we're meeting weekly until the middle of probably March when everything got a little bit more intense. And after that, probably the next month after the beginning of March was just 100% involved in figuring out plans as to what we were going to do if X, Y, and Z happens. Plans on canceling surgeries, plans on where we would put extra patients, plans to put them in parking lots, in tents, and other places like that. And Dr. Phillips, I'm sure that's all sounding familiar to you as well. In addition to being the chief epidemiologist at NYU, you also specialize in infectious diseases and immunology. Tell us about what you and your team do and how it prepared you for the COVID-19 pandemic. Well, many of the things were very similar to what Dr. Cotton was mentioning. We were looking at our surveillance data, getting information when we could from overseas, and really thinking and planning for you know, an influx of patients. One thing that was helpful was in the index outbreak in Wuhan, China, they actually early on published a, an epi curve, which showed that there was a few number of hospitalized patients. Most of the cases were ambulatory, I suppose, but they were really tracking hospitalized patients. And it was several weeks before they started seeing the major surge in the hospital after the outbreak amplified in that community. So it gave us some harbinger of what was to come. And similarly to Loma Linda, we were just planning for an influx of patients, where would we put them, what sort of personal protective equipment would we use, and particularly what sort of engineering controls could we use to keep our patients and certainly our staff as safe as they could be. 
And Brian, you're a healthcare market leader at MBBJ in our New York office, and you're a healthcare programmer, a planner, and a designer. Tell us about how you work with clients in this role and how, if at all, did those interactions change during the pandemic? As a planner and programmer, or what I call medical planner, I'm really more on the front end of a project, really working out adjacencies, the number of you know operating rooms, emergency department positions, building consensus, working with the users, and then really working out how a floor plan works and really getting into the specifics of maybe a patient room and things like that. So what happened was my clients were really pivoting from focused in on planning and programming and design to capacity. We want to dive into lessons learned and how to prepare for future pandemics. But one of the most terrible and unifying things about the pandemic is that all of us were impacted personally. I know each of you have a unique experience and a story to share. Brian, can I start with you? What was your personal experience and how did it shape how you think about design now? You know, my mother fell at the very end of April, April 29th, and I'm in New York City and she's in Nova Scotia. And I ended up renting a car to go and be with her because they actually called two days later. She was 92 and they called and they said, we're not going to operate. She's in the process of dying of passing away. So I rented a car and I drove 15 hours solo and I actually made it in time and they wouldn't let me up. You know, the moment they heard I was from New York City, which I thought our protocols were probably better than Nova Scotia at that time. And so basically when I was sort of arguing with them in the lobby, but I understood their position because I work so much with hospitals. I understand how important it was to try to contain things. She passed away and then they allowed me to go up after and spend some time with her in her patient room. And I was thinking to myself, if they could let me up after... (laughs) Couldn't they have left me up during? Because it was eminent. It was really apparent that she was going to pass away. So I guess that personal experience, just as I'm planning and designing, I keep that in mind because we can plan and design the most incredible spaces, but the operational and protocols also get applied over that. And my story is no different from hundreds of thousands of people, but I try to think about how with that experience, I can create better spaces. And maybe in the next pandemic, we might be able to respond differently. Thank you for sharing that, Brian. Dr. Phillips and Dr. Cotton, would you mind sharing a personal story as well? Dr. Cotton, maybe you can go first. I think one thing that Brian said is part of his workload got a lot easier and part of it got a lot more intense. And I think in the medicine world, the rest of the world shut down and medicine ramped up. My wife pointed out that most of her friends' husbands were home, and she saw me less in that first year afterwards than she did even before, and she doesn't ever think it's enough. And so I think the families of people that worked in healthcare, you know, they suffered to some degree. Adrian, I think you hit the nail on the head. It was just so ironic to me to be talking to colleagues, and they're like, you know, I'm having more family time than I've ever had. And even when we did come home and we were on service and on the floors, you know, you were a little worried early on. I mean, I slept on a different floor than the rest of my family to start because I just didn't know whether I'd be asymptomatically shedding and how that would be affecting my family. I don't think we've all completely processed that. So speaking of New York, it's a hotspot for tourists from all over the world. Of course, you guys were hit very hard. Dr. Phillips, were you surprised by how quickly the situation descended or were you expecting a situation like the one that unfolded? Yeah, early on, we were doing calculations on the number of air travelers from individuals that came from the provinces that were surrounding Wuhan. 
And then when Madrid was was heavily hit, we were tracking that as well. And our screening was that was occurring was was pretty rudimentary. I mean, we were just doing temperature checks in the ED, so we knew that this was coming. And I think we were hampered by you know a lack of diagnostic testing as well as certainly therapeutics. One thing we were relying heavily on was our tracking of uh, fever cough. So patients presenting to locations in fever cough where the diagnostic testing was negative. And the other sort of call I'll never forget was with our major supplier of respirators, and, and they came from Wuhan. So we knew rapidly on that we would be dealing with a situation where respiratory protection was key. We were likely to face some pretty severe shortages. We knew we were going to be stretched on bed capacity. And so really relying on engineering controls wherever possible. The project that Mr. Langlands was talking about was really related to our Kimmel Pavilion, which is just a really wonderful HVAC system and allows us to put all the rooms in a negative pressure and all the room is HEP, air is HEPA filter. It was really designed as a respiratory protection hospital. The biggest challenge for us, though, is we have 1,400 other beds that we had to provide the same level of protection as we were doing in Kimmel. Big lesson learned for me was having the flexibility of an HVAC system and engineering controls really makes a huge difference. Dr. Cotton, did you face some of these challenges as well? Did you have challenges with diagnostic testing, equipment shortages, bed capacity? So similar to Dr. Phillips, I think every hospital in the United States had similar issues which they looked to academic medical centers for advice and initially trying to send patients there. One of the first airplanes that came in from China landed at March Air Reserve Base, which is about 20 miles from where we are, with a big discussion with Riverside County and San Mario County Health Departments as to what would happen with those patients, where would they put them. And I would say a fair amount of panic as to what we would see and what those patients were. Ended up most of those individuals actually stayed at March Air Reserve Base, and they put up tents and evaluated them there. We also had the excitement of moving into a new hospital during the middle of the pandemic. So building a hospital and trying to move into a new hospital while the pandemic is going on. Actually, probably later waves in the pandemic probably helped us a little bit because we still had our old hospital of which we could use some of the beds. But the initial rush of patients at the beginning, we unfortunately weren't in the new hospital yet. The new hospital, again, designed with much better features for HVAC and other things, private rooms rather than shared rooms. Our old hospital was all shared rooms. And Brian, from a healthcare design standpoint, did you have a project that had to pivot or change to support pandemic-related needs? What were some of your biggest challenges? Our Coney Island Hospital, which opened recently, which has now been named the Ruth Bader Ginsburg Hospital, was under construction, and we immediately had to pivot in a couple ways. One, we started to sort of redesign the hospital. Questions were coming up. Can we convert behavioral health beds into med-surge? Can med-surge take two patients? Can med-surge be ICU? And quickly analyzing with the client what we would have to do with the infrastructure to upgrade in some way. So as we were constructing, we were also sort of redesigning as we were going through it. That's number one. I think number two was the actual construction of the project 
was impacted. All of a sudden, we were having to test the workers, the construction workers coming in and off the site, started having a maximum capacity of how many construction workers could be on the site at any one time, how many could be in the actual construction elevator, which then meant it took hours to take construction workers up and down. So I guess in two ways, looking at planning and design to make the building more resilient and more robust and how to fold that in, but also how to keep constructing a hospital that's under construction and still try to make the targeted opening date. And Dr. Phillips, you know, talking about this resiliency and surge capacity need, can you walk us through how your hospital is prepared for a future pandemic? I think one thing is that we we looked very used use the NIOSH hierarchy of controls when we're thinking about trying to mitigate exposure to uh, to a substance such as COVID. Obviously, engineering controls are the most important. I think we are sort of thinking about things like, as per code, our emergency department waiting rooms have a tremendous number of air exchanges, HEPA filtered, or exhausted. But the emergency department proper isn't required to have the same level in this era where you try to push people through the waiting rooms as quickly as possible back into a bed. It seems like clinical practice is leapfrogged ahead of where our requirements are. And so kind of thinking about that, where do we need to, quote unquote, go above code in the future as we're thinking about future hospitals and, and facilities? The other thing as well, and this is something that you know we, we struggle with, is, of course, later on in the pandemic, the goal was to avoid intubation. But early on, we had a lot of patients intubated and using a lot more oxygen than we were before. So we rapidly had to ensure that our oxygen lines were enough so that we didn't have the dreaded situation where you get freezing of your oxygen lines, which of course would be terrible. So I think that for us was kind of like a situation that we saw coming and we were able to basically run additional lines, but we've sort of hardwired that into our infrastructure now, if heaven forbid we were ever in a situation like that again. Well, Dr. Cotton, what do you think about all this? Has the clinical care surpassed the code in ED and other areas? I mean, where do we need to go above the code in future facilities to address some of these concerns? That's always a tricky question to answer because there's a balance of safety versus cost versus the ability to even actually design something that could meet the requirements or the desires that we have. And I'm not sure there is a good, there probably is a good balance, but I'm not sure what that balance is in that. And again, working with companies that help us design things and working with the regulations on air exchanges, et cetera, I think that's where the future is. We'd love to have all the air exchanged every two seconds if possible, but it's not realistic without a hurricane going through. I think we heard from the airlines during this that it was safer to be on an airline than it would be in almost any hospital room with the amount of air exchange they have in airplanes. I think that was disconcerting to some of the general public, at least around our area. And then uh, to Dr. Phillips' point as well is, you know, all the viruses act slightly differently. And what you would do for one could be very different from what you do for another. And so there's not a one solution that fixes all the respiratory viruses that come through. And I think that's where the difficulty is. It's the balance of all those things. And Brian, you're involved in FGI guidelines development. Are there parallels between designing for this type of you know, increased patient capacity for a pandemic or other scenarios where a hospital may have to flex in acuity? For example, the situation we're in right now, climate disasters. So 
the FGI guidelines, Facility Guidelines Institute, basically sets the minimum requirements for healthcare spaces in about 42 of 50 states. We specifically have airborne infection isolation rooms, but right now a conversation that's taking place is can we have some negative pressure rooms that are not official airborne infection isolation rooms? And how do we use those? What finishes should be in them? What air changes should be there? And how do people know how to use that room as opposed to an official one? So so there are conversations taking place. You know, the other conversation that's taking place, which I think might change with more recent environmental things that we're discovering with our heats and floods and rains, is what is the minimum that we do for sustainability and other things in our buildings? Do we go beyond that? And I think we are starting to get to the point where we need to think or raise where that bar is as to what the minimum is. And we need to start thinking and building in the more sustainable design into our designs as opposed to just what the bare minimum is to have a hospital function. Well, let's talk about the people on the front lines. Healthcare is already a very demanding profession. It has long hours, compassion fatigue, and stress and burnout are high. Dr. Cotton, what are some ways that Loma Linda prioritized caring for the caregivers during the pandemic? And how are you making sure that they have the resources and the support that they need? So I think this was actually probably the hardest part in the long run of the entire pandemic. I think when the pandemic began, people were very nervous about what the risk was to them, what the risk was to their families when they went home. I think a lot of people at the beginning believed that if they'd get COVID-19, they would pass away. And so there was a lot of concern in multiple different arenas. And then I think the part that made this even more difficult was that the pandemic didn't ever seem to end. We got through the first wave and everyone was kind of had a sigh of relief that we've done this. People worked extra, people worked multiple overtime hours and extra shifts. And so people can do almost anything if there's a known end point or known end time. But when the end point is unknown, I think that was where it gets very, very difficult. We're also a faith-based organization and our chaplain's department, along with physician and nursing leadership, they really leaned on our belief in a God that can help us and a God that can guide our directions, which I think was huge for us as well. And then our administrative team here as well, they weren't going to sit at home and do all their meetings via Zoom and not be where all the staff was working. So our nursing leadership, our administrative leadership team, everybody was here. So Brian, how do you as a designer design spaces to help mitigate some of this healthcare burnout? I think what's important is to try to be more considered about what we're thinking and to be a better advocate for especially the staff. I'll give an example. We are always pressured for square footage on an inpatient floor. And we often, rightly or wrongly, often wrongly, end up compromising in some ways staff lounges, staff break rooms, other things like that. And we try to maximize the perimeter of a building with patient rooms because they all require windows. And I think we need to educate the clients and owners, the people who are going to be working in these spaces, the importance of having daylight coming into the center of the floor plate that maybe the entire floor plate is not wrapped in patient rooms, that the staff lounge should be along the perimeter and have a window. 
we also learned that we need to think about the size of the staff room, especially for this pandemic. If we're creating distance between people having breaks, that we need to think about the size of these. And these staff rooms and other rooms like this are often looked to as, can we reduce the size to pick up a procedure room? Or can we reduce the size to pick up more equipment storage room? And I think we need to think about all of those rooms. There, There is greater awareness because the more I don't want to call them amenities, but the more things that you build into your design actually help with recruitment, help with retention, having incredible spaces that staff are actually looking forward to going and work in actually really works in favor of the institution when they're actually looking to try to retain staff and have happy staff. Dr. Phillips, what, if anything, did you and your team learn about infection control? Did you learn anything new or did it simply solidify already existing knowledge about how these types of viruses are spread? Yeah, I think we learned a lot about infection control. It was very interesting hearing Brian talk about that sort of in-between room between a regular patient room where there's no requirement for the air pressurization, just a set number of air exchanges, to an airborne isolation room, you know, this heavily engineered room that requires a lot of you know, finishes and air exchanges, 100% exhaust, et cetera. Even now in our policy, you know, we state that a patient that, for instance, has a symptomatic COVID infection, we like to put them in airborne isolation room. We just don't have enough. So we actually put them in rooms that either through our chemical pavilion, we've converted to negative pressure through the central building control system, or if it's in one of our other facilities, we actually have an exhausted HEPA filter in that room. So I think that's another thing we've learned is that we can't always fit somebody in an airborne isolation room. And sometimes a regular room doesn't have the engineering controls that we think are necessary. And as I mentioned before, it wasn't quite as big, obviously, but we had a pretty big measles outbreak in New York City and incubation a little bit longer. We had people becoming symptomatic while they were hospitalized for another reason, not measles, developing symptomatic measles in the hospital. So having these kind of engineering controls in place, even, heaven forbid, we don't see another COVID outbreak, but we know that we're going to expect it. And, and Brian, when did we open Kimmel? I mean, it was 2018? It was June, June 2018. Yep. So since then, we've only been open five years. We've been using it in this respiratory capacity between measles and COVID for almost four continuous years. And we didn't expect that, I think. Neither of us expected it to be used so heavily early on. Brian, is there anything that you would do different in your design, knowing what you know now? If you look at Maslow's pyramid of hierarchies and you think about the caregiver's hierarchy of needs, at the bottom, at the base, the most important is really safety and accuracy, right? And if you move up, you then have, you know, visibility, observation, communication, and at the top of that pyramid, I think is comfort and experience. I think when we were in the midst of COVID, everything, the tertiary and the secondary dropped away. And I think we were in the primary mode of focused in on accuracy and focused in on safety. And I think what we need to do now is we need to think about how we integrate into our design what's in the secondary and what's in the tertiary. I'll give you an example. We discovered very quickly that a nurse who is confined to a patient room had difficulty communicating with anybody who was in the corridor outside of that room. How can we design, maybe we start thinking about not having wood doors in 
med surge rooms. Maybe, maybe we look for other ways that when we're in that primary mode, that all of these other things that are just as important just don't disappear. And I think that's something I'm focused in on is to how to be more considered in the planning and design going forward to actually pull those things in. Well, I'd like to ask each of you about the advice that you give to other organizations who are maybe looking to scale up their pandemic preparedness strategy. Dr. Cotton, I'll start with you. The first thing I would say is figure out who the key people are on the leadership team and allow a very small group of people to make decisions. Once you start getting too many people trying to make a decision, then then nobody makes a decision. One of my colleagues that I spent an awful lot of time with during the COVID discussion, his theory was that if you take one person that knows 90% about a topic, you'll get 90% of the right answers. You get two people that know 90%, you multiply it, now you got 81% of the right answers. The more people you add, the less right answer it becomes as we go through. And then supply them with an environment that they can do can actually do the work. We had a command center that we set up that we ran We had meetings at least twice a day, sometimes three times a day, and then it would go down to once a day. We had a system set up where we went over certain points every single day, what we needed for X, Y, and Z, and who was going to do it, and then followed up later in the day with those. And then I think the other thing we need to do is have discussions now of what actually worked in your organization and what didn't work in your organization during this COVID-19 pandemic. Because we will see something similar, hopefully not to the same degree, but we will certainly see something similar. And they figure out everything that we need to do, and then we just follow people like Dr. Phillips and everyone on the East Coast, what they've done. And so, you know, it's looking to organizations that did have a big influx of patients and will have big influxes of patients in the next pandemic and learning from them. Dr. Phillips, Dr. Cotton referred to you as the East Coast trailblazer handling the situations first. What would you suggest a healthcare organization do to ensure that they are more prepared the next time a pandemic or similar event occurs? Well, I agree completely with Dr. Cotton's statements that, you know, you really do have to have a very nimble leadership team that works well across the institution. We're very lucky that we do have a sort of an emergency management group that is gets activated routinely and routinely pulls people in, partly luck, partly just because we were starting to hear this glimmering as what was going in Wuhan in January of 2020. Actually, we had our large tabletop exercise having to do with respiratory infections coming in that were like COVID, SARS-1, you know, and I think that just having that exercising those muscles is key. I think something that I think I will try to do is really, I think we communicated in an okay fashion to our colleagues that were in similar situations across the institution, so uh, across the country. So we do have an informal listserv of, you know, infection control people like me, and we were exchanging ideas, but not doing so in a really coordinated way. Early on in this pandemic, you know, the federal guidelines, the state guidelines, you know, of course they were there, but they weren't able to evolve as quickly as maybe some of us on the front line saw. So sharing something as simple as like, this is our protocol, this is what we're seeing, here's our signage, you know, that kind of stuff that could certainly help other institutions, and we would learn greatly 
from that kind of stuff. There's there's somewhat of a hesitance, I think, sometimes to share this information. Maybe it's medical, legal, maybe it's what, I don't know. But we found that just by even sending out our protocol manual as it was changing is helpful. The one thing I will say is I think that our buildings, you know, particularly the, the Kimball building, really performed super well. But communication was an issue. When you walk through our old building where there's centralized, they used to call it nurses station, was a clinical integration station, and you have four bedded rooms, and you have the team all gathered around there. Great opportunity for transmission of respiratory virus among staff, but also a great opportunity for support, camaraderie, exchange of ideas, etc. In our newer facilities where the footprint is so much larger and the care teams are so much spread further out, that communication, camaraderie, support is something that we really have to focus on. The pandemic was such a difficult time, but we really are starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel. Dr. Cotton, what makes you hopeful when it comes to lessons learned and how we can prepare for the next global health event? So I think the fact that we're all still here on the other side is a good thing. We made it through and certainly not at the expense of a lot of lives lost. And remembering those individuals and what they taught us and what they gave us, I think, is critical for what we will do and decisions that we make for going forward. And I think that seeing individuals, the staff, the nursing staff, the EVS staff, the respiratory therapists, the security, there's still people that care, even at their own expense. I think the people that care still care. And as long as we look to find the people that care, those are the ones you want to kind of follow and focus on. The human spirit is quite incredible, and it is very resilient, and I think it will continue to be resilient going forward and going into the future. I love your comment on the the strength of the human spirit. You know, I think we surprised ourselves with our resiliency during the pandemic. Dr. Phillips, how about you? What makes you hopeful about our path forward? Well, I do think that we have a, a much better understanding of certainly how respiratory virus can move through a community and affect communities. And I think a much better understanding about as we implement these controls, both on the community level and hospital level, when it makes sense to do so. What might make sense in New York City might not make sense in upstate New York, you know, and I think we have much more flexibility and understanding about that. I agree that I think that communication is better. And I also think that people are thinking more holistically about these kind of threats towards institutions, as well as even non-infectious threats. I mean, we're just in the middle of our hurricane planning and heaven forbid flooding of Manhattan again. So understanding that, and I think it's, at least I can say our hospital administration is is 100% engaged in, in emergency preparedness. And I think that's a good thing to see. Brian, last but not least, what gives you hope when it comes to this topic? So I think I'll build on both what Dr. Cotton and Dr. Phillips said, but come from it from a different perspective. One of the hospital administrators at Atrium Health said during the pandemic or towards the end of it, if you've seen one pandemic, you've only seen one pandemic. And I think in some ways, our hubris, we were humbled. We lost many, many lives. But I think from being humbled, it taught us that we are human. I think we were scared and we were surprised. And I think what that means is going forward, we will actually think more carefully about what we are doing and what we're designing. If we're thinking about designing or planning things in the future, we need to understand what the entire system is. How does the system want to react? And how does each piece within that system 
want to fit within that overall approach. And I think that's something, so the whole holistic look, the comprehensive look, I'm being asked by clients, oh, well, what should we do in this room? And I'm asking, well, how do you want this building to respond? How do you want this floor to respond? And then how do you want this particular room to respond? So I think we're asking better questions. I think the owners and clients are asking better questions and therefore our designs become better and our spaces become better. Thank you so much for joining us today. Special thanks to my guests, Dr. Adrian Cotton, Dr. Michael Phillips, and Brian Langlands. For more information on the ideas discussed on today's episode, please visit our website at nbbj.com. If you liked what you heard, please share, like, or review wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you on the next episode.